we're addressing the challenge that is before us in helping church kids remain faithful to Christ after high school graduation. It does not begin then. Proverbs 19, it actually begins with the godly home. In Proverbs chapter 19, John Wesley said, I learned more about Christianity from watching my mother than all the theologians of England. And John Wesley was educated at Oxford University. That's where he learned Christianity. His mother, Susanna Wesley, was a dynamic and strong Christian mother. Of course, there was Jalen and Danny married to one another. And as he stood before her in a mismatched t-shirt and shorts, mismatched flip-flops, a soiled and dirty hat, and a sagging belly, he said, why don't you just accept me for what I am? And she said, I'm trying to accept you for what you aren't. These two stories illustrate the challenges oftentimes that kids end up facing. It comes in both ways, through parents and through the home and the home atmosphere, especially the marriage relationship between a husband and wife. The research makes it clear that up to 85% of kids that finish high school from our churches drop out and never return to the church. It used to be that they'd marry and have a child, and they'd come back, usually at the mother's urging. That's not happening any longer. We've discovered in our research that the parents are the most important factor in producing faithful kids. Their influence far outweighs any other influence. They are more important than pastors and staff and the student or the youth minister. They're more important than any other factor. It is a myth that having the right staff and uh, the right programs in a church will guarantee the faithfulness of a kid after high school graduation. The home is the most important factor. In fact, the number one reason kids say that those that did stay in church after high school graduation was family upbringing. Now, I'm not among those who are down on the millennials. I told you that a few weeks ago. Tim Tebow is a millennial. I happen to kind of like him, and I think most of you do as well, despite his Florida attachments. We're just grateful he didn't go to Auburn. But... Um, and not only that, but the millennials who actually stay faithful are a bit more zealous and evangelistic than previous generations of Christians. And they are burdened for a movement of God in their generation. They are painfully aware of the challenges that we face. Kids from a godly home are more likely to stay faithful to Christ and His church after high school graduation than merely church families, and there is a difference. There is a large difference between a godly home and a church-attending home. Our research shows that mere church attendance has little influence upon kids after their high school graduation. It's the godliness and the spiritual quality that makes all the difference. Years ago, someone wrote the song, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Johnny Cash, one of my favorite theologians, happened to make that uh, a rather popular song. The idea is, is that the family is a circle. And there are members of the family that will make it to heaven and that will follow the Lord and live for Him 
But if one of them doesn't, the circle is unbroken. What can I do, or is broken, what can I do to make sure that my family circle is unbroken? Let me make it clear again. Kids do not merely need a nice church-attending family. They've got to have a godly home that is set aflame for the glory of God and His will in Jesus Christ. Look at some of those qualities in verses 13 and 14 of Proverbs 19. A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. Houses and riches are the inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. These are the family issues involved in raising godly kids. What does my family need to do then to make sure the circle is unbroken? Well, there are several things that are needed. One is tranquility with the master. Tranquility with the master. A peace and a satisfaction with the master of all, God Almighty and Jesus Christ. It reminds me of one graduated school teacher who had not found a job yet that saw an advertisement to help with the job search for teaching. And it, she was to call 1-800-45-TEACH. And she called and she got a laundromat. And she said, I thought this was an outfit to help teachers find a job. And they said, what number did you call? She said, 1-800-45-TEACH. And she spelled out the word teach. And the laundry lady said, you misspelled the word teach. In order to be effective at raising kids for God, we've got to know Him and be satisfied in Him. And Solomon talks about this in verses 16, 21, and 23. We've got to have this peace, satisfaction, and tranquility in Him. Beginning in verse 16, we find satisfaction or tranquility with this treasure, with what God treasures. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. In other words, we've got to have a guardedness about keeping the commands of God. There are people that go throughout their day and never, never consider a single commandment of God. Kids pick up on that. Uh, they, they give attention to their own wisdom and their own understanding, but they never pay attention to the commands of God. Kids pick up on that. We've got to have a satisfaction or tranquility with this treasure. Then verse 21, with this plans. There are many plans in a man's heart, Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. In other words, we do our best in thinking through our day, but at the, uh, at the moment where we've got to make a decision, we've got to be surrendered to His plan. And whether God's will and His plan for our day or plan for our life is very important, will be picked up on by our kids. And then we need to be tranquil and satisfied with His wonder. Verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction, and he will not be visited with evil or with trouble, as long as he's satisfied and fears the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to hold God in wonder. The fear of the Lord is to be awed at Him, moved and impressed. I mean, you open up your Bible, and it's a thrill. You got the opportunity to come to a church, and it moves you. You think about the Lord Jesus Christ 
and you can't help but get excited about his name. That is the fear of the Lord. And the one who walks in the fear of the Lord then is, will abide in satisfaction. And God guards and hovers over, with exceptions, guards and hovers over the person who walks in that awe, that impression, that wonder, that fear. In other words, there are some things that are fixed, like His commands. Some things are flexible, like our plans for the day. Some things are fantastic, like the matchless name of Jesus. And we're at peace and satisfaction in those things. We walk peacefully then with Him. The challenge is, however, is that some families and even some marriages are like a bunch of ticks together without a dog. I mean, if you've got a marriage without Jesus Christ at the center and the husband and wife walking with Him, that's like two ticks without a dog. And you've got a family of five that are trying to walk without Him and without leaning on Him. That's like five ticks without a dog. They, they don't have enough sustenance within themselves to satisfy one another. The only way the heart and soul can be satisfied is to root it deeply within Jesus Christ and thank God He's available. He's available to every person that will repent and place faith in Him. Rooting ourselves in Him. And that's why at the end of this message, we will invite you to come to Jesus Christ. He was slaughtered at the cross for our sins. He was raised victoriously from the grave and stands ready, able, and near here today to cancel sin and to make you right with God. So now through Jesus Christ, you can have access to Him by the blood of His cross, and He does it for anyone who will repent and who will believe. And that's why it's so important for every Sunday school worker to be available for every bit of training that you can possibly have. Please RSVP today for our Sunday school training next Sunday when Alan Taylor is with us, and please do it today. The point I'm trying to make is your soul was made for God, and you cannot satisfy yourself out outside of Him. And if you're without Him, it's not that the desire for satisfaction is eliminated or evaporated or as if it goes away. Every human soul will find satisfaction somewhere. If you don't find it in Christ, you'll find it in something. And it will almost always backfire on you if it's not Him. He is the only one who is trustworthy as the primary satisfier of life. I mean, people, if they don't find it in Him, they'll try to find it in sex or in romance. They'll try to find it in work. They'll try to find it in possessions. They'll even try to find it in family and will always be disappointed in every one of these things. No one and nothing was ever designed to take the place of Jesus Christ. And the moment we seek our primary satisfaction in something else is the moment we place someone else before Him and become guilty of idolatry, you see. We need to begin to trust Him, come to Him, and seek Him. So whenever you have this kind of tranquility in Him, then you gain credibility with your kids. And that's when you can make an impact upon Him. So tranquility with the Master. But secondly, intimacy with the members of your family. Intimacy with the members of your family. George H.W. Bush, the 41st president, was interviewed one time. And he was asked, what is the greatest honor that you've ever had in your life? Now, he can mention a number of things. He played baseball and was the first baseman for Yale University. And he was a World War II pilot and hero. 
from World War II. He was also director of the CIA. He was um, ambassador to China under Nixon and made some strides there for a new China. He was vice president for two terms of the United States and then was president of the United States as well. So he had many things he could mention about being honored in life. But when asked the question, what has been your greatest honor in life? He said, my children still come home. That man has his priorities right. He's built an intimate walk with every one of his kids. Is that not a marvelous thing? My children still come home. Now contrast that with little Ashley. She's nine years old. She's on a flight and sits next to a stranger, a Christian woman. She's being accompanied by a flight attendant. She's flying from out west to Georgia where her daddy lives. Her mother and daddy have been split up. And she spends that time on the airplane talking to this young Christian woman and author. And they talk, and they, the flight lands, and they're deplaning, getting off the plane. And Ashley turns to this woman she's only known for a few hours, and she says, I think you know me better than anyone else in the world. You have to understand, there has been enormous shifting taking place in our world since World War II, and it's finally caught up with us. Kids today do not have the intimate connection with family and parents and grandparents that they once did. We tried to warn the nation that if you keep being as mobile as you are, and you keep being isolated from one another, your churches and neighbors as you are, the kids are going to pay the price, and ladies and gentlemen, they're paying it today. They're enduring that. And so that, we have kids who know a few adults for a few hours on an airplane flight saying, you know me better than anyone else in the world. A good relationship with parents, the research says, is a strong indicator that a young adult will stay faithful to Christ and his church. When a kid is not close to mom, uh, that kid is 65% more likely to stray from Christ. When they're not close to dad, they're 50% more likely to stray. And that's why the qualities that build intimacy in Proverbs 19 are so urgent and so important. One quality happens to be verse 11. And actually, all three of these are prefaced with the word restrains. The, the person that builds intimacy restrains his or her eyes. Verse 11, discretion, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. In other words, this person doesn't pick on everything. In other words, they have their sights on the big issues of teenage and childhood life. They restrain their eyes. Then, verse 13, they restrain their tongues. A foolish son is the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dripping. There's constant carping, constant criticism. Solomon is discouraging here. The one that builds intimacy restrains the tongue and is not contentious. And then they restrain their wandering. We have disloyalty, every one of us in our hearts. And when things get tough, we want to drift. But verse 22, or verse 20, uh, excuse me, verse, um, verse 22 suggests something different. What is desired in a man is kindness. That's the Hebrew word hesed. And it's probably better translated Loyal love. It's the word for the covenant relationship between God and His people, where we are loyal to our God and He is loyal to us. 
We are His people. He is our God. And when that is true, we express that to one another. We belong to one another, so we restrain wandering and departing from one another. The picky, the contentious, the unstable divide families and they divide marriages. So what in the world do I do? I heard about this one couple celebrating their 50th anniversary. And uh, after it was over, a grandchild came up to the grandmother and said, How did you and granddaddy in this day of busted families and busted marriages, how did you and granddaddy maintain such a strong love relationship? She said, well, when we were married, I decided that I would write down 10 things I would overlook that he did. I'd write it down. And she said, uh, and every time he would do one of these, I would just overlook it. She said, well, what is that list of 10 things? She said, well, I never got around to writing the list. But if he did something that annoyed me, I'd just say, well, that's on the list. I'm going to overlook it. Now, that, that's important in a marriage. Whenever you are married to one another, you see all the faults and all the flaws you can possibly see. You know more about your spouse than their parents did when they were children and teenagers. You do. And may I say, it is easy to pick them to death. Knock it off for crying out loud. Because you aren't such hot stuff yourself. You let me come live with you for a week. I'll find a few things to pick on. You let somebody with a more vigorous spirit than the one you're picking on come. They can find something to to pick on. I heard also about this um, woman who was talking with a uh, child counselor, a Christian man that um, uh, very very strong and uh, and very uh, helpful and influential in how uh, to raise kids. And she was speaking with him and talking about some trouble she was having with her 12-year-old daughter. Uh, And he said, well, what's the problem between the two of you? She said, well, she wants to shave her legs at 12, and I don't want her to. And it's creating such a fuss between us. And he said, lady, buy the razor. It isn't worth battling over. With the strong-willed kid in your home, just get them through. As long as you get them into adulthood where they're not pregnant, got someone else pregnant, not addicted to drugs, and uh, they had murdered somebody and they're still alive, sometimes that's the best you can do with some of these jokers. For the compliant child... For the compliant child, early on, you've got to help them start making some of their own decisions and becoming secure in them because if you wait until they leave your home, they are vulnerable to everyone else and everyone else's pressure and suggestions, unlike the strong-willed child. There are some things that just aren't worth battling over. Focus on the major things in life because you want them to still come home. So Solomon says here, build, build intimacy in your family. And the key to doing that is this, affirm good behavior. You affirm it, you'll multiply it. You affirm it, you will expand it every time. Therefore, your home has got to be more than a hotel. It's got to be more than a restaurant. Oftentimes where people eat alone. 
You've got to take the time to notice positive things and to affirm them and encourage your children in that way. Intimacy among the members. Tranquility with the master. Then the authority of mom and dad. That's the third thing that is necessary. Reminds me of the um, little boy that used to give his mother fits. And she would cave and collapse immediately with him, would fulfill every one of his whims. And she was hassled by this boy and harried by him. When he was about six years old, however, she uh, changed dentist and went to an older, wise dentist. And he gave her fits about that. Didn't want a thing to do with the dentist. Well, somehow she got him there, and he made everyone in the waiting room uh, miserable while waiting for his uh, appointed time. And it came, and he went back to the dentist room, and the dentist said, get up in this chair. And he said, no. He said, I said, get up in the chair. He said, I'll take my clothes off if you make me. He said, take them off. Get in the chair. He said, I'll really take them off. He said, I don't care. You're getting in that chair. So he took off his shirt. He said, I'm really going to take them off. He said, fine, get in the chair. He took his britches off. He's in his undergarments. He said, I'll take them all off. He said, you're getting in the chair. Take them off. He took everything off and stood there before the dentist and the hygienist, two adults in the room, and uh, <laughs> naked as the day he was born, as naked as he could be, he got in the chair. And when the dentist was finished with him, he said, I'll have my clothes now. And he said, nope. You tell your mother to come back tomorrow and get them. And so he walked out of the room, into the waiting room, as naked as he could be. The mother was bumfuzzled and beside herself, scooped him up, took him home, and came back the next day for the boy's clothes. And she said, you will not believe the change in attitude my boy has experienced. <laughs> you know, Vance Hadner said one time, there's authority in the home, but the kids have got it. I want to make it real clear to you and relieve you of a great big burden. Your kids don't have to like you. And you don't have to be their pal and friend. Now that's no excuse for abuse. That's no excuse for contentiousness. That's no excuse for pickiness. Not at all. But let me let you know, if you're not a parent, if you are a parent, if you were a parent, you will make decisions that they will not agree with and it doesn't mean you are wrong. Doesn't mean that at all. In fact, Proverbs 22, verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You think when these kids are born, they're all precious and wonderful? Well, they are. They last about 10 minutes. But then the foolishness comes out. You don't have to teach them to sin. You don't have to teach them to be stubborn. You don't have to teach them to bite the kids in preschool. You don't have to teach them to bite you. You don't have to teach them these things. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And correction is what will remove it, the Scripture says. And so mom and dad have got to have authority. Now, Proverbs, uh, excuse me, Psalms 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in the earth belongs to God. And so all authority, all authority, even the authority of mom and dad in the home, is borrowed authority. God lends mother and daddy authority and they are to operate with that authority 
within the boundaries of the will of God. They're not to get outside of His will. And so discipline is very, very significant, especially the style of discipline. Kids that grew up in a loose or an abusive home situation were not faithful to Christ following high school graduation. Parents that raise faithful kids that are faithful as young adults have a more balanced approach to discipline. They exercise their authority within the boundaries of the will of God. Now look at the mood of this authority in verse 11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. Every parent needs to be slow to anger. Now I know that's difficult. It's difficult for many. But especially... Yeah, well, I, I think, <laughs> I think, I think that uh, there must be this club that kids become part of where they find out what annoys their parents so they can do it over and over and over and over again. I understand. But the mood of authority is this. You never discipline in anger, and you never discipline in selfishness. The mood of authority is to be love and full of discretion. Then the motive for authority, verse 18. Chasten your son while there's hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. In other words, do not indulge the child, one translator says, do not indulge the child to his destruction. If you do not have correction in your home that is appropriate, then what you do is you set your child up for failure in the future. That's the motive of authority. In other words, your motive is that the child may be completely successful in the future. Not only vocationally, not only educationally, but also spiritually and relationally. In other words, you're trying to equip this kid with everything he or she will need so that he or she can be completely successful in the sight of God. Now that means the ability to walk with God, valuing and knowing how to conduct a marriage and family, knowing how to have biblical uh, values when it comes to work in other areas of life. And so authority of mom and dad. In love, parents must exercise discipline and guidance with the future in mind. But then there's a fourth thing, and that is stability in marriage. Verses 13 and 14 make this clear. Verse 14 says, Houses and riches are the inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. In other words, the implication there is, is that there needs to be some stability in the marriage. Verse 13, a foolish son's the ruin of his father, and the contentions of a wife are continual dripping. He's imagining an unstable marriage because of contention and misguided values in verse 14. Stability in a marriage is a primary predictor of provision in a family. One of the best ways to avoid poverty in life is to be married and to keep it together with a harmonious relationship. Most faithful young adults who are faithful to Christ following high school graduation had parents who stayed married in a happy marriage. Divorce, when there is divorce, they are likely to drop out and struggle even in other areas of life. Children whose home is busted by divorce are two times as likely to drop out of high school. Girls are three times as likely to become teenage mothers. And boys are two times more likely to go to prison. It makes a difference what happens in the marriage. Young adults with divorced parents were 11% more likely to stray from Christ than those who were not. So 
you need to understand, what happens in the marriage relationship is profoundly influential on the life of a kid. Kids simply have a hard time buying into the faith of parents who are not mature enough to keep the marriage together and prospering. They just don't believe what their parents say oftentimes. Now, if yours do, well then thank God. Now, you know my disposition towards divorce and towards those who've suffered from it. My own parents did. We love folks here at Beach Haven that have gone through that. In fact, if you're a guest with us today, you need to know we've got more than 65 couples at Beach Haven that have celebrated their 50th anniversary. And many of those who have had a second marriage or third marriage or more are working on 30 and 40 years because Jesus Christ makes a difference. And everyone is welcome here on God's terms at Beach Haven. But I've got to say to you, We need to be in a gentle and a very kind position as a church family where we advocate one man, one woman for life because it makes a difference in the hearts and lives of the kids. Now, two of the biggest hindrances I have found and discovered, and maybe Dr. Sims could uh, say this as well, in couples that are in trouble is that they're slow to do one of two things, and usually both. Couples that are in trouble, number one, are usually too slow to admit it. One marriage partner usually arrives at that point sooner than the other. But as a couple, they're too slow to admit, we are in crisis, we are in trouble. And the second thing, they're too slow to get any help. Oftentimes, when they do come in, they come in when, frankly, many would say it's too late. There's so much bitterness. There's so much resentment. There's so much anger. There are layers and layers and layers and layers of disappointment, lies, broken promises, and a variety of other things that keep them from getting the kind of progress that they need. It reminds me of a doctor who... um, uh, finally caught up with a patient and spoke with him and said, look, you came in for a test the other day, and I've got some good news and bad news. The good news is you have three days to live. The bad news is I've been trying to call you for two. <laughs> Do you know God has never had that problem? God's never been slow to communicate a need in a marriage or family or a life. I mean, a restless spirit, a sense of guilt that you can't shake, chaos and failure in your own family, in your own marriage. You know, he uses a lot of different means to communicate that. He does. He uses pastors, he uses the Bible, Christian radio broadcast and some other means. A mother-in-law who keeps reminding you. Children who say, well, wait, you said this, why are you doing this? And they keep saying it. It's not an exception, it's a rule. And when you try to counsel them, their eyes glaze over because they feel like they're speaking to a hypocrite. God is trying to get your attention. God's never had a problem with communicating the problem is with us and not listening and it's time to get this right 
there's a lot riding on it. There is satisfaction in this life. There's credibility in this life. Everything that matters, this side of the grave, is on the line when it comes to marriage and family. And then on the other side of the grave, it just gets more critical. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. And what we've done with our marriages and what we've done with our families will be an issue on that day. God promises that if you'll repent and reject a life outside of Jesus Christ, discard it and embrace Jesus Christ and trust His cross and resurrection for the penalty of your sins, God will make you new and you'll have the power to walk with Him. Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you listening? Do something with Him today. Humble yourself before God and say yes to Him. Quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray together.